0: of Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Smith. The music on today's show is "Daisy" by Fang Island, off their self-titled album from 2010. To hear the full song plus a bunch of other righteous jams, check out the T Map B-Sides playlist on Spotify. It is linked in the show notes. If you listen to the show I did two weeks ago about quarterback strategy and QB scoring settings, you know that I had originally planned to discuss PPR and point-per-first-down leagues last week, but some real-life obligations bogged me down, and now that scoring settings deep dive will have to wait until next week because, in the meantime, for this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Pat Corain from EstablishTheRun.com and the Ship Chasing podcast. We're going to discuss the nuances of projecting stats in fantasy scoring, then try to identify some situations with players and teams that we might be able to exploit based upon the limitations of projections and their effect on the market of fantasy drafts. Before we get to Pat, though, I want to remind you that 4 still has early bird pricing in effect. And no matter what plan you sign up for, Classic, Pro, or the DFS embedding plan. You'll get a $35 coupon to use on a draft at the FFPC. So not only are you getting that early bird pricing, you're also getting $35 back to use on a fantasy draft that you know you want to do anyway. So head over to 444.com and take advantage while you can. Our awesome tools and team of analysts won't steer you wrong this season. All right, I'd like to welcome in Pat Corain, and I was recently checking out the Zero RB episode that you did, Pat, with Adam Levitan over at the Establish the Run podcast, and there was a simple phrase that you used kind of in passing in the podcast that really got my gears turning, and I thought that it would make a good discussion here on TMAP, so uh, I want to get right into it with you. That two-word phrase was projection error. And projections are a big part of what we do at 4 for 4. They're a big part of a a lot of different fantasy analysts work. And we do a lot of our valuations based upon projections. But I I do think it's important to be mindful of what goes into making projections so that we can understand their strengths, understand their weaknesses, their limitations. So when you say projection error, what does that mean to you? And why is it important in fantasy football analysis?
1: Yeah, projections are a really powerful tool, but they're basically built on a variety of assumptions that we're making. And, you know, you're kind of quantifying a, a bunch of educated guesses. So the fact is that a bunch of those guesses are going to be wrong. Um, and as a result, a lot of our projections are actually going to be wrong. It's important to understand that and try to understand in what ways they're likely to be wrong. So where that error is likely to come and we can use historical trends to help under understand that obviously everyone's working with the same information here. So it's okay if our projections aren't going to be perfectly accurate because we're just trying to beat our opponents rather than, you know, perfectly predict the future. But typically people tend to overestimate how accurate projections are. Mm -hmm. So even if you have really good projections, you don't generally just want to draft off of what the, uh, the output is on fantasy points in that order. You want to understand that you know projections are a tool to help you uh, predict the upcoming season, but also realize that your opponents are maybe overly reliant on them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And we're going to get into some specific teams and players that we think might be subject to these sorts of errors a little bit later in the segment. But first, I want to talk to you about the key sources of these projection errors. Like, wh- what are we looking for? And how should we quantify or scale which ones are the most important to us in terms of our analysis, right? Like, Because we can look at just pure variance associated with projections like players who get injured midseason. Or we can look at preseason analysis that happened to have been incorrect, you know, where we didn't account for the uncertainty in a depth chart or in the way that players are going to be deployed in a certain scheme. Or maybe we just have a lack of data on a player like rookies or players in new situations where we don't really know where to start from. And I'm sure there are other sources that you could come up with as well. And feel free to correct me if you think I'm missing the point of projection error by bringing up these sorts of topics. But when we're talking about the sources of these errors and what we can do to maybe combat them in our in our analysis, what does that mean to you and what are you looking for?
1: Yeah, no, I agree with all the the sources that you mentioned. Um, and. You know, you've mentioned that you heard me say projection error uh, on a podcast with Adam Levitan. I was I was talking in, in that context about, about zero running back. And mm-hmm. when you look at injuries specifically as a, a cause of projection error, that, um, you know, it's not something you can completely avoid. There are a lot of injuries in the NFL. But within the context of zero running back, what you're trying to do is structure your draft in such a way that you're not overly exposed to the types of players who have tended to get hurt more often. So I mentioned in one of my articles on that, that Josh Hermsmeyer did work showing that once we factor in ADP, running backs are much more likely to be hurt than wide receivers. So those high usage running backs are really risky, specifically with regards to injuries, um, getting hurt 200 to 360% more likely to be, to be injured than the wide receivers in similar ranges. So That's one reason why I like strategies like zero running back where you're actually using your draft structure to try to um, limit your exposure to that injury risk where, you know, we're not necessarily able to get better at predicting. Maybe we can get a little bit better, but it's injuries are pretty random. So it's hard to really anticipate that we can predict which players are going to get hurt in a reliable way, but you can use um, strategies like zero running back to help, Limit the risk to your particular team,
0: right? And that's one of the backbones of the zero RB strategy: is that anti-fragile approach, where you're spending your higher picks on wide receivers who tend to not get off uh, injured quite as often, and you're kind of factoring in that natural extra injury risk associated with the running back position. Now, let's talk a little bit about these other sources of projection error, uh, that incorrect analysis I talked about, that lack of data on new situations for players. Um, how do you account for those in your analysis?
1: Yeah, I think one thing to to keep in mind with projections, like when you're looking at all this stuff, is that projections take a bunch of different stuff and they boil it down to like one number, if you're looking at the fantasy points mm-hmm. that you're projecting a player to score. And that can sometimes actually hide how much variance there is with everything in terms of the scheme the, the way the coaches are planning on deploying guys new players at the same position being added so like an example of this uh, is Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs he's probably either going to be in a similar role to last year where Jalen Rashard going to be used like he was last year and Lynn Bowden who is going to come in and get some of that DeAndre Washington work and Jacobs is going to basically have the same more or less two down role that that he had last year or you know mike mayock was talking about using him more as a receiving back and if he does get used that way he's probably gonna have a pretty big spike in his receptions this year if you look at projections for josh jacobs like no one's gonna project him to just get exactly the same amount of receptions he had last year or to have this massive spike like you kind of have to pick some version of a middle ground between those two options but that middle ground in and of itself is not really all that likely to occur. So when you look at a projection for Josh Jacobs, it's actually kind of hiding the fact that he has a fairly wide range of outcomes in what his what his reception total is going to be this year. And when you draft Josh Jacobs, you're not really drafting this like very safe lead running back. At his cost, you need him to become a three-down running back, or he's not going to pay off on his ADP. So you're actually making a bet on his reception upside, and I think projections don't really do a good job of illuminating what you're doing when you're actually selecting a player like Josh Jacobs.
0: So with him specifically, how I guess how likely do you think it is that he does spike in the reception category? Is that something you would count on this year, or that you would, you know, factor into your analysis, or do you think that he is going to end up losing? more work to you know Lynn Bowden and to Jalen Richard because the nice thing about Jacobs and, and I think a lot of the reason why people are still willing to take him towards the back half of, of the first round or early second round is that he does seem to have that rushing production and that uh, goal line role locked up for the Raiders like I don't see that going away for him and there's this sense of safety associated with that but what you're pointing out is that that might feel safe at a base level. But because there might not be that upside for more, he's actually a bad pick. Like, wh- where do you actually land on Jacobs in terms of your willingness to draft him or not draft him ar- around his ADP?
1: Yeah, the the latter is is how I feel. I, I don't think he's a very good pick at his ADP because if he doesn't take a step forward in terms of his receiving ability—not really ability, but but how much he's used there—then he's not going to pay off on his ADP. And we have like fairly strong evidence that he won't considering they re-signed Jalen Richard and they just drafted Lynn Bowden, who, you know, is a converted wide receiver. So, so he would see time you would assume uh, as a receiver out of the backfield. So yeah, to me, he's a tough pick there. And I think it kind of goes to the idea of when you're, when you're taking uncertainty into account in your drafts, like you don't necessarily want to be spending like really high draft capital on guys where we're not even, clear what their roles are you can actually like ambiguous backfields or changing situations all this stuff that creates projection error can actually be quite useful later in the draft but early in the draft it it creates busts it creates a lot of bust risk
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense now if if i asked you to peg one specific running back as sort of the opposite case one where that reception value might not be baked into the projections but you think that that upside is going to hit who's a player who fits that bill for you
1: yeah, a guy who fits that bill for me is Boston Scott. He's got a lot of uncertainty in terms of what his role is going to be, but also there's concern that they might sign another running back. And that's like a legit concern. They really might. Yeah. But over the last five games he played last year, and this includes their playoff game, he had seven carries inside the 10 yard line. Miles Sanders also had seven carries inside the 10-yard line over that same five-game stretch. They were actually even in that really, really critical goal line work. And then Boston Scott had 5.2 receptions, and Miles Sanders had 4.2 receptions. So, like, Sanders was kind of like – or Scott was, you know, almost the 1A in terms of that high-value work. Obviously, Sanders is going to be the lead back this year there, but he – Did not function as a workhorse last season. I think he could function as a workhorse this season, but you know drafters are really really bullish on him. It's going like the 107 right now in FFPC uh, high stakes league. So I think we're kind of we might be getting ahead of ourselves in projecting this backfield to go all to Sanders, given what we saw down the stretch last year. And I do think if they sign another back. That running back might not be a threat to Boston Scott's specific role, which is very much receiving-oriented. And he was very efficient last year. He was uh, running back two in yards per route run, the PFF stat that, that ends up being usually pretty good year-to-year. Year. Uh, it's one of the more predictive efficiency stats. He was number two to Austin Eckler in that metric. And I think that he's probably got a safer path to receiving volume than people think. And you can just take him, like in the FFPC, you can take him in round 10 and get him like every time. So he's someone that I'm uh, I'm pretty interested in. And that backfield is a little bit more ambiguous than, than it might appear because you need Miles Sanders to take this leap forward, which I think everyone, including myself, expects him to do, but it's not a guarantee.
0: Right. And we've seen the Eagles with Doug Peterson be a little bit more of a split backfield in most seasons. So expecting that to change... In 2020, might be foolish. We we don't know. Even though all the reports coming out are that they want Miles Sanders to be this workhorse or whatever, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, I am with you though that him and Jacobs tend to be a little riskier based upon. I, I just think there's this overall trend, and this is another reason why zero RB kind of came to be a thing is that more and more backfields are dividing up that work, um, and it's not always going to work out that way in the long term scheme of a season because, like we talked about, there's variance here, there's injuries, all that stuff, but from you know, one team to another, uh, in general, those workhorse roles are, are not really there quite as often anymore. And that has to factor into our analysis. Now, uh, let's talk about some more specific teams and situations where you think you might be able to find some flaws or some value uh, in the projections or the projection errors associated with those projections. And I want to start with, I guess, maybe a, a tougher question, which is, which NFL team do you think is going to be the most difficult to project for the 2020 season? Because not only do we have all this stuff going on with coronavirus and quarantine, but there's turnover every year for a lot of different teams. And I'm wondering if any team in particular to you stands out as one where, you know, the projections in general are just very difficult to make.
1: Yeah. I think the team that's hardest to project. And like, like you mentioned, there's a lot of hard teams this year, but I think Washington just seems like, where do you, where to even start almost? Because we've got a new coaching staff. We don't know what, what we're going to get at the quarterback position, which obviously has a lot of downstream uncertainty to, to everyone else. Projecting anyone but Terry McLaurin in terms of skill positions is, is really tough. Their running backs that they already had on their roster were going to be tough to project as it was. And then they added Peyton Barber. They added JD McKissick. They added Antonio Gibson. Tight end is a total question mark. Pretty much everything except Terry McLaurin is is not really stable. Um, so you know, and Terry McLaurin is a second year player. So there's, I just think that entire offense is going to be very difficult to project. Not necessarily an offense that I want to have a ton of exposure to, but one that I think is just we're going to be like probably pretty wrong on.
0: Yeah, I mean, thankfully because they're going to be a bad team, we don't have to worry about investing too much in them in general. And most of the players for that reason are relatively cheap. So it's not like there's a ton of risk associated with those picks. But if you had to put your chips on one of the running backs on Washington for
1: fantasy, who would it be this year? Antonio Gibson. So what I'm looking for is I want guys who will get on the field as pass catchers. And I want, I really would also like them to have size and athleticism, which Gibson does. The thing with Gibson is that, like, he's probably one of the hardest players to project for a, an actual useful fantasy role of, like, any running backs being drafted. And and he's not that cheap. I mean, in FFPC, he's typically going in, like, the 10th, 11th round, um, right around, like, pick 120. But he is a player that, like I said, if he gets on the field, it's going to be in a receiving role. And that's really critical um, with these zero running back type selections kind of reminds me a little bit of Alvin Kamara as a rookie. When he came in, he had Mark Ingram and Adrian Peterson uh, actually also blocking him as well. And it just looked like, yeah, how is this guy ever going to see the field? But when you got a guy getting on the field as a receiver, and then he's got size and athleticism to go with that, then you can see his role develop over the course of the season. And that that is what we want to see with zero running back targets. Uh, J.J. Zacharyson had a good article about running back breakouts where he was – making the point that these breakouts tend to come from ambiguous backfields, not from injury handcuffs. So you want guys who can really play their way into a bigger role um, and play their way you know, into standalone value, which I think there is an opening here for Gibson to do on the receiving side. And I think he's got really big upside in the last few weeks of the season if he were to carve out a bigger role, because he actually has the size to where he maybe he could start to see some of that Goal line work too. I think, you know, he's going to be in a committee with Geis even in a best case scenario, unless there's a guy's injury. But Geis really wasn't used that much as a receiver last year. So there's a pretty big opening, I think.
0: And one of the other things you pointed out in your article about those ambiguous backfields is we tend to skew our favor towards the younger players in those scenarios. But that's not always the way these situations pay off. And I think that was an important note. And Kind of on that topic, another team that is kind of flummoxing me when I'm going to do my analysis are the Los Angeles Rams. And this is a team where the players are are being valued relatively highly. And despite them having so much continuity from last season, you know, all they really lost was Brandon Cooks. I'm still not very confident in what that offense is going to look like this year because... You know, while Jared Goff appears primed for some positive regression, I'm worried that maybe he's just not that great. And it's tough to know how much he's going to miss Brandon Cooks. And you look at that backfield in L.A., if you can guess right on Cam Akers, Darrell Henderson, or Malcolm Brown, that could pay huge dividends. But again, this uncertainty there makes me pretty uneasy about drafting any of them and especially acres at cost because he's a rookie because of quarantine and the potential struggles he might have getting up to speed for the NFL game I mean even beyond the running back position with the Rams you look at their tight ends like I still think Gerald Everett has a sneaky shot of making all this Tyler Higbee hype look foolish and you know the Robert Woods versus Cooper Cup debate is one that we're going to have all offseason so this is a team where I see the potential value but I also don't necessarily know how to assign that value uh, relative to cost in drafts you know what I mean
1: I completely agree yeah in in terms of the pass catchers I've I've taken some shots on cup and I've also in, I did a best ball draft where it was super flex and so I got Goff and then paired him with Robert Woods and Higby who I think can like the Higby Woods angle is interesting to me because I think those guys coexist in a much better way than cup does with with Higby or with Everett, like if they're going to be more in the 12 personnel, I think that favors Woods. So I kind of like doing something like that where you, you correlate Woods and Higby or Woods and Everett maybe. But yeah, I I think in the running backs, I've been particularly from from a dynasty angle, I was not all that excited about acres and he got very expensive post draft. And uh, I was just avoiding him in that range and going for the wide receivers who I think are pretty undervalued. Then I started to come around a little bit on Akers, but his price is keeping me off him in redraft two right now. And I, the thing that really jumps out to me is that last year, the Rams running backs combined for the fewest receptions in the league, and pretty much all of those went to Gurley, who's now gone. So you, you would say, okay, Akers probably comes in and, and takes that work, but he needs to build on that work that, that Gurley got. And Henderson really wasn't getting any receiving work at all last year. He got the same amount as as Malcolm Brown, actually. And then, you know, Malcolm Brown, I think, probably will be involved on the goal line. So you could have acres being, you know, Ben Gretsch has this trap stat where it's like the percentage of your of your carries that aren't carries from inside the 10-yard line or receptions. So that you know, if you have all of your work basically being t- uh, carries between the 20s, low, low value that's touches. That's not actually a very valuable work. Low value touches, yeah. So your percentage of low-value touches. I think Akers could be a huge trap guy, just a ton of low value touches and losing that high value carries to Malcolm Brown on the goal line. And then maybe just not having that many receptions to the running back in the offense. So I'm not sure there's a right answer on the Rams and uh, I'm not really drafting any of them right now. Yeah. Typically when a
0: situation plays out like that, I just go with the cheapest guy and that's Malcolm Brown. And there are some reasons I think to like him at his cost. Like you said, it does seem like he might be the best bet for goal line work and just the fact that the Rams drafted Akers this year, one year after they took Henderson, might lead me to believe that they don't see Henderson as, you know, the asset that they thought he was. So yeah. meanwhile, they they paid Malcolm Brown last offseason, they kept him around, they like early go. So I I think Brown is probably the best value of the three relative to cost. But like you said, it is just kind of a a nightmare and you don't necessarily want to have a ton of investment on any one guy. It's probably best just to spread it around. Now, we've talked about these teams that we think are tough to project. Let's get into some takes where you're a little bit more confident. And I wonder which NFL team you believe is being under projected and therefore maybe underrated by the fantasy
1: hive mind. Like which teams stand out to you in that regard? Yeah, there's a few. I I think the Steelers jump out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that people are really fully baking in what Ben Roethlisberger's healthy return could mean to the offense. I think James Conner, Juju, uh, Ben Roethlisberger himself are all nice values right now. I think James Washington is interestingly. late. I think Deontay Johnson is actually getting a little hyped up. Um, so maybe the value has been sucked out a little bit specifically on him, but for the most part, there's some real value to be had in the Steelers offense. Um, I think, the Eagles, I've already talked about Boston Scott. I actually think Miles Sanders is pretty interesting. Like I like Miles Sanders a lot more than Jacobs because I think there could be a lot of receptions to running backs here. But I also really like Jalen Rager, and I've been taking him like in every format. Uh, I, have, I have a ton of Jalen Rager, and I, I plan to keep loading up. I, he's a really promising rookie, and there's just a big vacuum for wide receiver targets here. Uh Alshon Jeffries coming off list Frank surgery I think he could be a total zero this year Deshaun Jackson I you know should be healthy to start the year but there's still plenty of targets available in this offense and, and Rager is a very dynamic playmaker and, and really I think fits what they're missing in that offense so uh you have some pretty strong quarterback play and I think the Eagles could be a more potent offense than people are expecting the other offense I kind of like um, and I'm b- a bit out on a limb on this one, is it's the Titans, specifically the passing game. I think they're set up to deliver the same kind of play-action offense and be really effective there. Obviously, A.J. Brown's going to regress. Obviously, Ryan Tannehill's going to regress. But I think they're still going to be pretty efficient, um, particularly A.J. Brown. He looks like a budding superstar. And I sometimes think that, you know, like when you're making projections, you, you're starting at the team level, This is a team that clearly wants to run. okay. And then you go to like Ryan Tannehill. What's Ryan Tannehill's passing efficiency going to be like this year? Probably not nearly as good as it was last year, et cetera, et cetera. But if A.J. Brown is actually a superstar wide receiver, then that's going to drive the offensive philosophy to some extent. And it's also going to drive Ryan Tannehill's efficiency to some extent. So I'm making a bit of a bet on um, A.J. Brown being legit. And if that's the case then I think Montana is undervalued I think AJ Brown's a great target uh at his ADP. I even think Johnny Smith might be a bit over uh, undervalued if this offense passes a bit more than we expect.
0: Yeah, with the Eagles getting back to them real quick, I think the the one trend that I can kind of pinpoint when I look at where those guys are being drafted and being projected is that the tight ends are being a little overvalued because they were both so good last year because there were no other receivers to catch the ball, and the wide receivers are being undervalued because they weren't on the field last year. Rager because he wasn't on the team yet. Jack Deja, Deshaun Jackson because he was unhealthy. Alshon Jeffrey because he was unhealthy. And I, I agree with you on Jeffrey. Like I'm not touching him with a 10 foot pole. I like Rager. I like D and I think the tight ends are fine if not a little overcosted. But I tend to think that tight ends are overvalued in general, especially in those middle tiers after, say, the top three or four guys. And I do think Ertz is starting to skew more towards that second tier than he is towards the first tier. Now, with the Titans, I I don't know what to do with that team. I, I like what you're saying about A.J. Brown, and that makes sense to me, but mostly because it's such a narrow potential usage tree in that offense. Like, I don't see anybody in that offense competing with A.J. Brown for getting the most targets from Ryan Tannehill. So I think that Ryan Tannehill can be a regression candidate and can slide back to being, say, like a quarterback in the 15 to 20 range at his position. While A.J. Brown remains a guy in the top 15 or top 12 at his position because he's the only guy getting targets. Like you said, because he's that superstar guy. So while I'm in on taking A.J. Brown where he's going, I'm le- I'm a little more hesitant to buy in on Tannehill just because what he did last year... Was so good and and so over his head relative to what we expected. Now, with that said, maybe it was all just Dolphins problems before that. I don't know. we'll, we'll find out. But I, I do have some concerns with Tannehill still.
1: Well, yeah, I, I think Tannehill runs, which is which sure. is something to keep in mind with good him. Point. And and so it fits with like I think he's actually probably okay if he has like a thirty three percent target share to AJ Brown and Brown's awesome because he'll he'll run enough. The other thing with Tannehill that I like is that, you know, if you go back to pre-Adam Gase in Miami, he was actually pretty good. Yes. Like, he was a decent fantasy option before Adam Gase ruined him, which, you know, I think seems like pretty likely it was, it, it that's on Adam Gase and not a reflection of, of maybe who Ryan Tannehill was. Like, just looking at his uh, his points, he, like he was over 20 points per game for multiple seasons prior to Adam Gase. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: A lot of that was tied to the rushing production too, so uh, earmuffs to the, to the Sam Darnold fans out there. You know, Adam Gase might not be good for your quarterback. Uh, not, not breaking any news on that front, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, the other thing I, I do like about Tennessee, and and this is something that is going to come up with the teams I'm about to mention, is that their strength of schedule metrics look pretty good at this point. Uh, it seems like they're going to face a pretty soft schedule of defenses, and That also applies to other teams in that division, right? And I'm looking at the Colts. I'm looking at the Texans because I think this is a relatively soft division, but not necessarily one where the teams can always turtle up into a shell and play overly slow or overly conservative, right? Like these teams are going to be able to put up points. I think that there is some value here relative to projections, relative to expectations. Like for the Colts, I think Jonathan Taylor could make an impression along the lines of what Miles Sanders did last year, what Aaron Jones did last year, at least – Cost relative to production at the end of the year. I think T.Y. Hilton could outproduce where he's currently going outside the top 20 receivers because we've seen him do it before and he finally has a legit quarterback again. And it's, I think, a near certainty that one or some of Paris Campbell, Michael Pittman and Jack Doyle are going to smash their ADPs just because they're all going so low in the first place. Uh, For the Texans, I think people hated the DeAndre Hopkins trade so much they just kind of forgot about how good Deshaun Watson is as a standalone asset. Watson's probably not going to look quite as good this season without Hopkins, but I still trust him to push at least one of his receivers past their current projections. We already know what Will Fuller is capable of in this offense when healthy. Brandon Cooks has proven after past trades that he can quickly incorporate himself into a new offense And Kenny still showed enough flashes with Houston last year to make me believe that he still has some splash play value, at least in a best ball context, at his cost. Plus, in terms of rushing production with Houston, David Johnson seems to be lined up for a big workload that isn't really reflected in his draft cost. But maybe that's just a case where the market is already smarter than the projections, right? Because David Johnson has already looked somewhat washed up at this point in his career, and he projects for a very similar type of usage that the other running back in that backfield is going to see Duke Johnson. So this is another more uncertain uh, scenario with the Texans. But I do think that there's going to be value to be had here if you can sniff it out from the right players. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and I like the Will Fuller call a lot. And I like the Paris Campbell call a lot, or that you know one of those guys is going to emerge. So that would be my pick, would be Paris Campbell. I, one of the things that um, that I didn't mention earlier, but it is a way that projections tend to miss is that second-year players often are beating their projections um, at higher rates than other players of other experience levels. So basically second-year breakouts are something you want to be targeting. And you see that probably most commonly at wide receiver. And, and like last year was just awesome. We had yeah. um, DJ Moore, DJ Chark, Cortland Sutton, Calvin Ridley, uh, Michael Gallup all had really nice breakouts. So Campbell is someone that's – on my radar as a second-year breakout candidate, I don't think he's necessarily like that much better prospect than Pittman. They're, they're pretty similar prospects, I think, in terms of like their fantasy outlook. But but Campbell has the advantage of of being in a second year, uh, where you know being a rookie wide receiver can it can sometimes take an adjustment. So I like both those calls.
0: All right, let's move from teams that we're thinking or being. Underprojected to teams that we think are being overprojected or overrated by the fantasy hive mind. Which teams stand out to you? Which players do you think stand to benefit or lose the most?
1: The Rams were actually the team that I, <laughs> I had uh, pinpointed here. So we, we talked that. But um, the other guy you mentioned just now is DeAndre Hopkins. He's someone that I've actually moved off of in Dynasty because you can get a lot for him. Sure. And in redraft, I, I don't think I'll really have him this year. He averaged a 33 percent target share over the last three years. Kirk, Christian Kirk led the Cardinals last year with a 24 percent target share. I, you know, Hopkins will beat that, but this is an offensive philosophy here with the Cardinals that they focus on being balanced in terms of how they're distributing opportunities among their playmakers. So I, I just don't think this is the offense that, that's going to feed Hopkins to the level that we've really become accustomed to. You know, it's the Cardinals, they're in this air raid offense. You would expect that maybe it's okay if Hopkins doesn't have this massive target share because there'll be a lot more passing volume to go around. But the, the Cardinals were 18th in passing attempts last year. Uh, Texans were 20th. They're pretty close. They were like 20 passing attempts apart. Um, so it's not a guarantee that there is actually that much more passing volume to go uh, in Hopkins' direct, direction and make up for a potential loss in target share. And, you know, there is. I think a pretty strong potential for a second year breakout from Kyler Murray, in which case Hopkins will probably be just fine at his ADP. But I would rather, if I'm betting on that second year breakout, either just draft Murray or draft Christian Kirk, who's like much cheaper than Hopkins, and I think underpriced relative to his range of outcomes where Hopkins kind of being drafted, you know, like he's this stud wide receiver and nothing's changed. But he's but he's changed teams, he's changing systems. I think there's a lot of risk that's not really priced into Hopkins right now.
0: I love the Kirk call. I actually just wrote him up in a a little blurb over at Fantasy Pros. They did one of their uh, featured analyst things where they asked everybody, who's the one player you want to leave all your drafts with? And Kirk is my guy because you look at where he's going. And I would have expected just a much larger value shift from last year to this year if we're expecting... That jump from Kyler Murray, right? Like you said, he's being drafted as a top five quarterback. We're expecting that second year breakout. Not all the targets are going to go to DeAndre Hopkins, and Kenyon Drake can only touch the ball so many times. Like Kirk has been good. Now, not great in terms of yards per attempt or anything like that or yards per route run, but he's up there in terms of volume enough to where if that volume increases again, if he plays a full season, and if DeAndre Hopkins is taking away most of the toughest coverage from opposing defenses. I just don't see why we're not looking at Kirk in a similar light to the way we're looking at Calvin Ridley. Now, now Ridley has been more productive to this point. So I get why Ridley is ranked higher and I think that's fine, but the Delta in cost between Kirk and Ridley just doesn't make sense
1: to me. It's huge. Yeah, I, I completely agree. The other thing I like about Kirk is that he's, he's versatile. He was used in a slot really primarily out of the slot to start the year. And then he was moved to the outside and he had a, a lot of production from the outside. So it'll be, you know, with a, a new addition like Hopkins, I think it's a real advantage for Kirk to be able to move around within the offense. Um, they can, you know, potentially exploit mismatches that way. So he could be in for a big year. And yeah, I think he's the clear way to play a Kyler Murray breakout because Murray himself is obviously much more expensive than he was last year.
0: yep, uh, A couple other teams that I'm a little worried about are the Buffalo Bills and the Denver Broncos, because I just don't trust Josh Allen or Drew Locke to perform at high enough levels to maintain the hype for their respective weapons across the board. Like, I'm okay with targeting select players on the Bills and select players on the Broncos. But I think expecting those teams' players to perform well across the board in fantasy, it feels like we're putting too much stock into these shaky quarterbacks in Josh Allen and Drew Locke. I talked about Josh Allen on the last episode as a guy I think is is vastly overrated basically being drafted at his ceiling right now but but Locke is another player who i see a lot of people trying to hype up but i just don't think we have the sample size from him to say that oh yeah he's definitely going to be able to support jerry judy and noah Fant and Cortland sutton and a quality running game like i just don't think that all this stuff adds up in a way that makes sense relative to where everyone's being drafted
1: what do you think yeah i agree i keep like i like Stephon diggs i like Cortland sutton but like when it comes time to draft those guys, um, you know, it's like, well, maybe next round, you know. <laughs> uh so it's it's tough. I think I like Sutton probably a little more. Um, although with Diggs, I wonder if maybe he can just kind of steal what John Brown was doing to a to a decent extent. But um I'm not really that in on singletary. I'm not I'm really not that interested in the Broncos backfield. So yeah, I'm I'm being pretty selective with with who I target for the Broncos. It's pretty much Sutton. And then on the bills, I kind of like Zach Moss late, you know, cause typically you get that guy who's like the touchdown maker. He's usually the first guy drafted. And I think Moss could actually see a little bit of receiving game usage. So he's pretty interesting. And then, um, I've always liked, uh, Stefan Diggs a ton and I think he's super talented. So I don't want to have just no exposure to him.
0: Yeah. Surprise, surprise. The zero RB guy like Zach Moss. Now, uh, Pat, I really want to thank you for for stopping by the show and talking to me about all this stuff. Um, speaking of Zero RB, people should go listen to that podcast you did with Levitan about Zero RB. Check out the articles you're doing over at EstablishTheRun.com. But I uh, want you to let folks know what else you're working on, where they can find you, and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, so um, my Zero Running Back articles are out on the philosophy, but I'm just getting my target list out. Zero Running Back target list uh, part one is out now, and I'm working on two more parts to that. Um, as we move into like the later rounds, um, so check those out. And then the other thing is that my podcast with Pete Overzet, Ship Chasing, is going to be out again. We just recorded our first episode earlier today. That'll be out very soon. And that podcast is where we talk about uh, high stakes. We so basically chronicle our season as we do high stakes drafts. Um, we're going to be in multiple main events at the FFPC this year, doing some football guys players championship drafts with uh, Davis Maddock, Blair Andrews, Hassan Raheem. So. We all like, co-manage those. So that's uh, that's going to be coming out very shortly here, and it'll continue through the entire season. And on Wednesday nights, we're going to be actually putting in this year our waiver wire bids live. So you can you can actually see, and we're hoping our league mates don't find out that we're doing this, <laughs> but we're going to be saying what we're putting in our bids specifically, as Pete and I discussed, uh, and, and come up with the specific fab amounts every Wednesday night.
0: That's fantastic. Godspeed with that, man. I have a feeling somebody's <laughs> going to be snooping on you, at least from time to time.
1: <laughs> you would imagine.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, thanks again, Pat. It's been great having you on. Thank you. And that does it for this episode of the Most Accurate Podcast. If you want to reach out to me, my name is Greg Smith. You can find me on Twitter at GregSauce. And like I said at the top of the show, next week I'll get to those scoring settings analysis for PPR for point first down uh, on the running back position, wide receiver tight end uh, that I promised two weeks ago. That is still coming. Uh, that's the plan for next week. Uh, so until then, I uh, really appreciate you tuning in. Head over to 444.com, see all the great work we have going on there. Get subscribed, take advantage of that early bird pricing and the $35 FFPC coupon. And we'll catch you next time on the Most Accurate Podcast. Adios.